Telecast, the TV industry news review. Has sports broadcasting changed forever over the pandemic? Will the English Premier League launch its own SVOD service? And following the Warner Media Discovery and Amazon and MGM Studios deals, who's next to get swallowed up in the streaming wars? Find out on this week's Telecast. This week, I'm chatting with former Head of Programmes and Special Projects at IMG and now consultant for the company, Charles Balchin, plus producer and adjunct professor of TV and media at NYU Stern School of Business, Evan Shapiro. So we've reached the 61st episode of Telecast and I realised that so far, we haven't spoken to any senior executives from the most popular genre of content programming, and that's sports. Sports programming not only props up many cable and linear broadcast networks, but also points to the future with new and existing SVOD services getting in on the act. So to discuss this and more, I'm delighted to welcome former head of programs and special projects at IMG, and now a consultant to the business, and also running his own company, Charles Balchin. Welcome to Telecast, Charles. Thank you very much. Outrageous that you haven't had sport before. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked, outraged. Well, absolutely. And it, it is interesting that sometimes we overlook sports programming and the enormous sort of technical feats that are going on every single, well, every single day, but certainly every single weekend. And we don't seem to notice them as much. So I'm, I'm really glad that you're here to help me put that right. IMG is a behemoth in the world of sports production and and actually TV and content production as a whole and is easily the biggest producer of content in the UK. Can you start by giving us just a brief overview of the business? Sure. Well, obviously sport, yes, but the wider picture through our uh, American owners endeavour, it does include entertainment, drama and film. Uh, Then there's models, IMG Academy, our sales arm, our sponsorship arm, and a very large events team. So, um, as you say, it's a bit of an amorphous uh, animal. It's quite difficult even for those of us within the company uh, to keep up with uh, what's been bought in the last few weeks. Yeah. Um, but it, um, it's very exciting. Uh, in terms of sports specifically, which is obviously my area, um, Premier League Productions is the 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week uh, Premier League channel. You watch that anywhere else other than the UK. If you're watching Premier League football, you're watching it through that channel. 55 European Tour golf events. Uh, Right now, I'm uh, looking after 240 volleyball games in Italy for the Volleyball Nations League, 240 basketball games, including the final four in Germany last weekend, which, by the way, uh, was the first time ever for any team or ball sport to be streamed live on TikTok. You know, Mm. and we cover every single uh, EFL game from the championship through to League Two remotely from our Stockley Park HQ. Uh, And those are just the ones I can think of off the top of my head. On the sports side alone at IMG, how many people are are, are employed and how many people are involved in the productions as well? I mean, it must be an enormous number of people. It it is, and it it, it fluctuates. Clearly, if you came in during July, there wouldn't be as many as if you came in during, during February. I mean, 
the, the theory that we all sit uh, and do very little in the summer is sadly totally not true. There's the small matter of Wimbledon, the small matter of the open golf, um, et cetera, et cetera. But clearly when football is at its peak, that's when, you know, there are literally an extra three to 400 people in the building specifically for that, for that sport. So you've been with IMG for 12 years, and obviously you've seen an enormous number of developments within the business, but also, you know, technology-wise, and also buyers for sports content. And you're now a consultant to the business, and you recently launched your own business. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yes, Small Backroom Productions, uh, IMG is still the biggest client for, for, for me, by the way. Um, and, and, and I'll be, you know, totally honest and say that it had just got to a stage where I wanted to get back a little bit more to, to making TV programs. Uh, and, and in my role at IMG, I was writing an awful lot of tenders and responding to, to those kind of things, uh, and attending all sorts of, uh, courses that everyone felt I should attend and, and they may well be right. But I suddenly thought, you know, it's actually been a while since I've been in a gallery. It's been a while since I've been in an OB truck. So it just came to an agreement with IMG where I would still do a lot of the things for them, but I would be free to do other things. For instance, uh, I'll be at Silverstone uh, for, for, for the Formula One Grand Prix. Um, you know, that's my particular passion. I was producer of Grand Prix at the BBC for many years. Mm. Um, so yeah, after that, it's just, uh, allowing me to, um, you know, in the twilight of my career, uh, to get back to having, having some fun and doing some things I've always wanted to do. Most of what you do is presumably taking place on a weekend. How, how does that affect, you know, the way that you work seven days a week? Do you see yourself working right the way through or you know because there's a, presumably a lot of travel as well before you hit the big red record button we were talking about the fact that we didn't know this until a few minutes ago that we're both Leeds fans you said to me was I at West Brom for the last game of the season when fans were allowed and and I said no and the, and, and the, I only ever get to see Leeds if they're in London on a Tuesday or a Wednesday which they quite often are by the way games like Fulham and Brentford and QPR seem to be those games because you've hit the nail on the head Guess what? Saturday and Sunday are my busiest days. When I was uh, when I was a producer at the BBC, I was in, uh, on an interview board for an assistant producer role that we had up, and this very nice chap came in, and about his third line was that um, he played five-a-side football on a Saturday, so would it be all right if he didn't work on a Saturday? <laughs> so you'll not be surprised to hear that particular interview didn't last very long. No. Um, I think the answer to your question is we have to have very, very, very understanding partners. Mine is an ex-BBC PA. Uh, I sat next to her while she counted backwards from 10 uh, and I was directing the cameras. And so she completely understands. All right. OK. It's like anybody. It's like people in the in the forces or in the police service. You know, you have to do it together to understand what it actually takes. I to, think so. To I get think so. the show out. Yeah. yeah. Now, sports programming paused briefly obviously during the pandemic and then restarted minus the spectators which we've never really quite got used to have we to be to be honest with you know it's no, it's it's, it's no. different despite the amazing efforts our audio colleagues make by the way but mm. just you know the difference between going again to the Leeds West Brom game or any game you want to mention actually having the crowd reacting rather than uh, you know a very talented sound engineer just fading it up as the ball 
just brush the post or whatever. Yeah, no, you're right. It, 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 we never really got used to that, did we? No, no. And we did see the odd time. I've seen the odd time when a, when a ball kind of goes slight, you know, just very closely past the goal. And the, for a second, there's a there's, there's a yes. goal celebration yes. sound effect. Yeah. But, uh, and then someone's gone, oh, no, it isn't. Yeah, you can picture the, the, the fader being pulled down. But that, now looking at, at sports pro- broadcasting and the pandemic, what do you think are the short and long-term effects on the industry? The importance that government had all around the world to, to get sports going again, to keep people engaged, I think, can't be underestimated. But what do you think are the, the short and long-term effects of the pandemic on the sports industry and the sports production industry? Well, first of all, it would be wrong of me not to doff my hat to our technical colleagues because what I think some people forget was it, it wasn't weeks. In some cases, it was days before some sort of normality was back and some sort of programming was back. From the very, very high-level examples of UFC, where they all up sticks and went to Abu Dhabi uh, for a month and had fights there in a, in, a, uh, in a COVID bubble, to the more traditional sort of editors going home and getting something delivered by, by DHL uh, so that they could carry on editing. And, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't doff my hat to, to, to those extraordinary technical people that achieved that. But in answer to your question, um, you know, the, the change to different production methods has been well documented, hasn't it? The live remote production is, is, is now, it's happening now rather than something we thought might happen in a few years' time. Uh, creating programs in the cloud is commonplace. Lots of us operate from our kitchen table. Um, and, and like so many industries, uh, you know, COVID has been the catalyst to accelerate the future forward to, to right now. We've been forced to innovate with new techniques. And what I really like is that production and technical who have sat opposite ends of the same table for so long, eyeing each other rather suspiciously, <laughs> um, I think now I have a totally newfound respect, which I think is absolutely great. Uh, and I think in the future, there'll be a hybrid of what we've learned about remote production alongside with the great advantages of actually being there. And, and, and I think we've, that's what we'll see. I also think the rise of the athlete uh, as the superstar, maybe even more than the sport itself, um, will definitely be something that will continue because in the absence of football, the fact that Ronaldo had a website where you could go and see him training in his backyard has had a massive impact. And now fans like that background stuff. They they like that all access areas pass. And I think that will be something that will definitely continue. That's interesting. So when it comes to footballers, let's say footballers, as their own brands, if you like, you see that is something that is only going to increase and get more powerful and and perhaps manage more and more of their own image rights to different social media platforms and and that's that's just something that's going to that's going to increase you think 100% 100% the athlete as the star uh, and as the driving force to viewers will just happen more and more yeah absolutely recently in the UK we saw the premier league roll over its current £4.5 billion broadcast agreement, essentially entering into a private sale 
agreement with uh, current rice holders, Sky, BT, Amazon, and the BBC, as opposed to the regular rights open tender process. Do you think that was fair? I think under the circumstances, it was the right decision. Will the next auction be a watershed moment? We've asked that about each auction for the last 15 odd years. Do I think the bids will be lower? Probably not. Will they be substantially higher? Probably not. In the UK, a lot depends on BT Sports' long-term sports strategy, um, which at the moment is, is unclear. Internationally, I think what will decide the final figures is how the broadcasting world looks like at that time. You know, nothing clever or original in that. For instance, if Saudi Arabia is split away from the rest of the Middle East and there is strong talk of a new sports channel in Saudi Arabia, then will be in sport bid the same amount without their most lucrative market? And will what the new Saudi sports channel, if it happens, pays be more than enough to make up for that? So, you know, there's so many things that we don't know about in three years' time. And I apologize for having creosote on my bottom and sitting on the fence, but <laughs> it's just the way it's just the way of the world at the moment. I mean, the other thing as well, which we've seen over the, the last few years, is Amazon dipping its toe into sports broadcasting. The one thing that we've seen, I mean, just in the last week, Amazon buying MGM Studios for, for uh, eight or nine billion dollars is that you know if amazon wants to do something it's got the money to do it they i think they've come in quite gently into the uh, broadcast setup i think do you think that's something that they're, they're likely to increase their investment in in sports and particularly in football i can't see how that isn't going to be the case because for me the the warner media discovery joint venture that was announced a couple of days before the Amazon MGM one uh, is just a further example uh, of the consolidation that's going to take place. And, and I just think that if you're going to consolidate and therefore um, 15 players are going to become five or six, sport, for the reasons we touched on at the beginning of this, has to be, has to be a part of that unless you make the the absolute clear decision that actually you're going to be the non-sports one, um, in which case, fine, because we all know and, uh, you know, we all have plenty of friends that aren't into, into sport. But in general terms, I think once someone like Amazon and, and Facebook have made a foray into it, I can't see that they would now pull out of the tennis, which IMG do for them, or indeed for the Premier League rights that they've currently got. We're going to come on to talk with Evan Shapiro in a little while on the show, and he's created something called the Media Universe, essentially, which is a, a map that he's created based upon all sorts of different data, which represents you know, how big the social media players are versus you know, a Viacom, for example, or uh, and it and it's quite astonishing when you look at the size of these businesses like Apple and uh, and Amazon and uh, and some of the others. You mentioned Facebook and Google. Their size compared to what we think are pretty big broadcasters. You look at it like that. You you're thinking, well, this consolidation is feels like it's speeding up now. Absolutely. And listen, I wouldn't. I I don't want to 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 take away from an expert in that field. I am I am but a humble sports jock. But what I would say 
is if Amazon can take just a few of the titles it now owns, such as Legally Blonde, Moonstruck, Poltergeist, Raging Bull, Robocop, for instance, and turn them into multifaceted franchise media shows, TV, movies, podcasts, comics. Don't forget Amazon-owned comicology, I believe, or whatever it's called. Then the increase of prime engagement, you know, is, is extraordinary. The churn is lowered. And for a company worth more than, what are they, one trillion and growing? To me, that's a that's a win-win situation. It sounds like, you know, there are going to be some interesting moves ahead. And I'm sure Premier League rights and lots of other sports rights are going to be incorporated within that. When it comes to women's sport, we've seen women's football receiving its first significant broadcast deal fairly recently. Do you see women's sport in general to be a growth area for networks and streamers? So the problem remains that most sports played by women are still not commercially viable. Also, we have to face the elephant in the room that many men still do not believe in the value of women's sport. If I put up a picture of, uh, I don't know, Emily Scarrett, uh, who was named World Rugby Player of the Year in 2019, and then a picture of Owen Farrell, who captained England to the Six Nations in 2020, I would guess what, something like 85% would know one and not the other. So all of us in TV need to take responsibility to create heroes out of these amazing athletes, people who resonate with fans, um, who, who will drive the narrative onwards and upwards. Tennis is the only sport where women have anything close to the money, recognizability and sponsorship potential of the men. And actually, having said that, a question may be the only sport where a woman, Charlotte Dujardin, has a bigger profile than the men. Both those sports have one thing in common. They either compete with the men, a question, or their events are scheduled around the same time as the men, tennis. And I think I think that's the key, Justin. Oh, interesting. Well, well, hopefully it is something that we, you know, uh, as viewers, as well as uh, industry executives, people can open their minds a little bit more because, you know, just commercially, as well as it being the right thing to do commercially, it's a, it's a massive opportunity, isn't it? I mean, you would think there's a, a huge audiences out there that are not engaging in sports that could do so. A- absolutely. And, and it's also massive for potential sponsors because it, it's reaching, it's reaching, what I, you know, I'm not an expert. What I'm led to believe is a traditionally difficult to reach audience. Now we've seen the streamers entering sports programming, as we've mentioned, and DAZN and Amazon with their football and tennis coverage. Hmm. Do you think there are any benefits or new opportunities producing sports for SVODs from a production perspective? Um, are there things that you can do on an SVOD that, that, that you can't on linear channels? Uh, I mean, how does it work from a, from a technical perspective? Well, COVID, again, has hurried us along sort of, you know, the path that streaming was heading down. The issue for me is quality v. cost. If I can stream, I don't know, a national table tennis tournament on three cameras for £5,000, organisers can't understand why an event of international significance with let's say nine cameras, can cost £35,000. They can't understand the price differential. They go, well, three to nine cameras surely is three times the cost. So three times 5,000 is 15. You're making a fortune out of us here. They don't understand 
graphics, uplinks, communications, replays, better lenses, etc. Um, so I have a slight concern that the one is is making the other a bit of a challenge. For Endeavor Streaming, another part of, of, of the company, they don't care. They just see they have more stuff that clients need putting out there. So there's a bit of a mismatch between the two parts of, of, of the company in, in, in those terms. But in general terms, I think you can try things more uh, when you're streaming than when you're doing a more traditional terrestrial broadcast. And I think that's because if you've been asked to stream something, the people who are asking you to do that generally have a slightly more open view as to what they want to see. Now, we talked a little bit earlier on in the show about technology and sports production. What do you think are the next big developments that we're going to see on screen when it comes to, let's, let's talk, we've talked about football let's talk about football what are the big developments that we you think that that are going to take the sport forward from a viewer's experience perspective well my engineering and technical colleagues will have a laugh at me answering this question uh, but i will i will have a go in terms of sport generally and certainly football i think co-viewing such as bt's watch together is going to become very commonplace and and, and i think that is a you know, particularly when there weren't, we weren't able to get to, to, to sports events as crowds. Uh, that's really taken on the experience to, to quite, a, quite a high level. Clearly, direct consumer is going to become even bigger. Uh, and, and in my world of sport, you know, I'm watching the zone very carefully. They're looking very aggressive, but can they make money? Uh, Amazon, we've talked about, you know, they're not far behind with the tennis IMG you make for them, the Premier League football they now show. The question is, are the smaller federations ready to do what the NBA and NFL have done in America? And my own experience right now with the FIVB on the Volleyball Nations League, you know, says they are. So I think I think individual uh, sports reaching individual smaller groups of fans uh, will continue uh, and they won't be quite so uh, desperate for BBC or Channel 4 or ITV to show things. The danger for that is they are only reaching the already committed rather than the potential viewer. Strange enough, I, I can actually see the rebirth of linear TV, you know, because Netflix, I've noticed, is training linear TV in France. Yeah. And Amazon are hiring people with, quotes skills in linear TV. So, you know, I presume there has to be a reason for that. But for all live production, sport or not, I see a hybrid future of remote production with some elements of the traditional. IP might work in some places and not others. Satellite may still be the answer if fiber is not. What about 5G? Mainly that's going to impact on the way we produce content and then distribute it. Um, I, I know some local telcos will start connecting to local venues with 5G. I think Telefonic have already done that in Spain, I think. So I think 5G should change the broadcast operation from start to finish with ultra low latency being a major, major plus point. And then finally, I guess, you know, the cloud becoming more and more uncompressed will surely offer us up even even more opportunities. In the meantime, we'll all be going to uh, to Amsterdam at the, at the end of December uh, to find out, you know, what the latest uh, technological toys are, and something will come out of there that will that will completely blow our mind. 
Oh, that's the IBC. Yeah, the IBC at the end. Yeah, at the end of December. Yeah. I've got to ask you while uh, I have you uh, on the line, Charles, about the European Super League that we saw briefly in the shortest uh, lived <laughs> league competition ever. And I think, and funnily enough, uh, I think I think I was I was chatting to somebody saying that actually Jose Mourinho was the shortest uh, shortest serving ever European Super League manager <laughs> during uh, during that week or so that it, yes. that it existed. What was your view? On that, obviously, you know, roundly condemned by everybody other than the six teams that were keen to be part of it, or the owners, should I say, that were keen to be part of it. I mean, what was your take on it? First of all, uh, an absolute classic example of of how to not launch something. Do your research first. Talk to people first, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think the fact that several of the driving force protagonists were American, where at the NFL, you cannot get relegated. The NBA, you cannot get relegated. I just don't think they had the slightest idea of the impact that sort of concept would have. You know, and the fact that, was it the Man United fans or Man City fans, one of them, you know, had had, had a, a billboard that said, I want my cold Tuesdays in Stoke. You know, they knew that, you know, there was a chance one day either Stoke City would come up, or they would go down, and they would meet, and they wanted that. So I think you know that that that, that really was the was the background to it. And, and all I would say is that I just think the great average fan felt that it was just something that they could never, never support. And I love the fact that so many of the big teams very quickly backed out. They 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 saw what was coming. And they backed out, and they apologised, and they'll get roundly fined, and uh, life will go on. But it was just a, a badly thought out, badly executed plan. So, looking at the Premier League, the future of the Premier League. I mean, I've I've mentioned this a few times. I've had lots of chats with friends in the industry and just sports fans that are mates of mine, and never never quite worked out why the Premier League hasn't started its own SVOD service. You know, why isn't there a Premier League flicks or Prem flicks or whatever you might want to call it? Some of the moves that it's been making in terms of the hires that it's been making would lead you to believe that that is surely the right model for them or the most profitable model. Can you ever see that happening? Uh, Premier League having its own SVOD service? Bearing in mind that IMG does Premier League productions, and so I I, I have to choose my my words with some care here. Nevertheless, um, the fact that they do have Premier League productions means that they have the basis of what you've already described. Um, So it wouldn't be beyond the wit of man um, for that to be developed into into an SVOD service. My understanding is that they feel the way it is at the moment is better for them for all sorts of all sorts of reasons should they get a whiff that sky and bt got together at the back of starbucks one year and said tell you what guys let's really bid low because we know there's no one else if they got a whiff of that they would very quickly be able to change Premier League Productions, which is an international broadcast element, to something that would work domestically. But I think they just feel, you know, 
they would actually have to, I haven't done the maths, but, you know, we all know the, the billions of pounds that have been spent. I think there'd have to be a very large amount of people paying quite a large amount of money to get to that stage. And then you've got to pay all your staff to do the channel and you've got to have the, the facilities to do, you know, to do that SVOD and you've got to pay someone to get the money, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's there as a backstop, Justin, hmm. rather than something that we might see. But you know what? In three years' time, you might be ringing up and saying, well, you got that one wrong, Charles. <laughs> but I just, that's my gut feeling. We've been talking a lot about football, obviously. But hmm. there there are lots of new sports that have been developing. We've looked at, uh, been talking about esports uh, before and, and various other sort of these niche sports. What do you think the next breakout televised sport to hit the mainstream will be? <laughs> I guess that goes back to my point about direct-to-consumer. If you get that right, does it actually matter if a sport hits the mainstream? And you're right. Neither of us are being hardly soothsayers when we say esports are clearly the next big thing. Maybe it already is a big thing. Um, but for me, it's less about finding the new snooker, um, you know, from 30 years ago, but more about which of the sports with strong female following and participation will grow. Women's football is already huge, but will cricket, rugby and motorsport do the same? You know, will the W Series, which is a female-only single-seater motorsport series, engage the motorsport fan enough? Uh, we're all trying to go green, and sports like Formula E and the new Extreme E may appeal to, to what I, you know, the Gen Z age group, as it's exciting and it cares for the planet. If I could tell you what the next mainstream sport would be, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now, but enjoying a yacht somewhere in the Bahamas. But I think female sport as a whole, if it's got right, is is one area. Eco-friendly sports um, are something that I think people are sadly much younger age group than me, I think are very important. And so I think that's another area that will get quite a lot larger. We've seen... A lot of resistance by the public in Japan to the forthcoming Olympic Games. In your opinion, should they go ahead? So again, the IOC are one of IMG's longest standing clients. Basically, what I would say is yes, if the COVID bubble protocols are rigorously enforced. I am. Uh, I just this morning got my day five test to release, having been in Italy uh, for the first week of the Volleyball Nations League, um, setting that up and, and making sure everything was was tickety-boo. I woke up in the morning. Uh, I uh, got into uh, the coach that had been cleaned overnight. We drove to the arena. Uh, we were in a bubble where only IMG was part of. We did 12, 13, 14 hours worth of volleyball. We got back into the coach that had been cleaned again and went back to our hotel. And that happened every day. And for my colleagues who are there for another month, that will happen every day. On balance, I just think the Olympics is something that's so important to so many people that, yes, it is the right decision. But I totally understand why some people listening to this are shouting now and saying, no, it's completely the wrong decision. Um, surely, uh, being absolutely safe and and you know looking after human 
uh, welfare is the, is the most important thing. It's a really tricky, tricky call. I'm just about on the side of, yes, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, me too, actually. I think, you know, we really missed the Olympics when they didn't happen last year. And, uh, you know, just the drama of it, even without fans, I think that all these athletes that have been working all their all their lives really for this moment um as well i mean it's 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 something that often brings the world together i think doesn't it every few years correct um correct so, and, and 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 you know what you and i may you know we'll be watching weightlifting with yeah. enthusiasm which you know for whatever reason we don't for the other three years normally three years but we'll be watching weightlifting and 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 will be marveling at, at the physique of the divers, um, you know, and things like that. It, it just, if you're into sport, then I, I think it just, it, it, it is the culmination. Um, if you're not, I can well see why you're going. I cannot understand why there's even talk of this going ahead. Well, I'm looking forward to, to that. And it's obviously a big year of sport as well with the Euros coming up. Yep. And, uh, and so, and obviously test match, Test matches, cricket test matches are just about to start. England, New Zealand's just about to to kick yep. off. So, you know, enormous amount of sport to enjoy. So, uh, Charles, thank you for that. And now it's time for Charles to pick his story of the week, the TV industry news item that's caught his eye in the past seven days. Charles, what's your story of the week? Well, without a doubt, it's the uh, merger, uh, well, actually the buyout, Amazon buying MGM. Now, I'm aware someone more qualified than me is going to be talking about this. Um, so maybe I'll just sort of touch on on, on the things that I find uh, fascinating. Um, there's no question in my mind that what we're looking at is consolidation. Uh, following, uh, you know, the Warner Media Discovery News getting together, uh, we've now got MGM and, and, and Amazon. There is one key difference. Uh, Amazon's whole business is centered around Prime. They want you to buy stuff while staying on the site longer because that way you might buy more. I guess while Prime itself drives uh, annual revenue via subscription, I don't think that revenue on its own is, a, is enough. Um, what they want and what they need is additional products being sold from Amazon and third-party sellers, uh, You know, so ratcheting up the additional revenue. Uh, I guess also the longer you're on there, the more time to advertise that dog hair comb you never wanted (laughs) because, hey, you don't even have a dog. But, you know, having a TV series that people want to watch and then using algorithms to push even more films or shows that might keep them on that site even longer is is key, surely. And, and of course, sport is very much part of, of, of that mix. So, you know, to me... It's 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 a big story, you know. I've touched on the fact that I think Amazon need to uh, find a few titles and and turn them into real franchises, and I think they'll do that. You know, they might decide that Rocky uh, needs a TV series. Uh, a lot of people are talking about Bond, but actually that that's a bit of a, a red herring because they aren't as free as they'd like to be on that because uh, the, the 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 Broccoli family have still a lot of control. Um, but to me, that that's what it is. You know, what does that mean for Disney, HBO, Hulu, and of course, Netflix? I mean, you know, together, Warner Media and Discovery own uh, over 25% of all new titles, you know, and I think Netflix are only on 24. So, you know, th- th- it's going to be some real challenges for, for Netflix, I think, who until now have been so dominant. 
I think they'll just find that uh, there are some real competitors out there, uh, and I'm sure they're going to react. Um, but how they react will be will be really interesting. I guess what's it all mean? Listen, I've got no clue. Uh, I, I'm just a sports producer, but if I were one of those smaller players, I'd be making myself look very attractive right now to potential buyers. And now it's that time in the show where my guest gets to nominate their hero of the week and who or what they're telling to get in the bin. Charles, who's your hero of the week? Justin, uh, sadly, um, my heroes of the week are two great sports production personnel who passed away last week. Uh, and I just felt I, I wanted to take this opportunity to, to mention that. Uh, Thomas uh, Bonacera was a great sports cameraman whose love of motorsports shone through, renowned for his work behind the camera, for his passion, his warmth, his artistry. Um, you know, colleagues from the world of Formula One and MotoGP uh, will stunned by this, as, as were many of us, and, and he'll be deeply missed. As will Steve Doherty, a great sports director who I've worked with for 35 years, be it badminton, snooker, cycling, athletics, rugby. Steve was a model professional who never accepted second best. Uh, that could make him a challenge sometimes, but he dragged everyone up to his level, and, and that level was as close to perfection as, as he could make it. So I just felt to all in the industry who knew him, I offer my thoughts, but especially to those at V Squared TV, where he worked on the Tour de France for many years, and those at Sunset and Vine, where in recent years his rugby coverage has been outstanding. My own colleagues at IMG are also in mourning for our lead snooker director, and I don't think Sheffield will be quite the same again. Um, but, you know, sorry to uh, to bring the level down a little bit, Justin, but I, I just felt I needed to uh, to take this opportunity to make those comments. Absolutely. No, of, of course. And, and obviously, sadly, we saw during the months of COVID, we saw Murray Walker as well. My great friend, Murray Walker. I, I spent... I was producer of Grand Prix at the BBC for many years. When I do get to write the book, the Murray Walker, James Hunt chapter will be the one you all want to read because honestly, we had a wonderful time and two very disparate characters who grew to really, really respect each other. Mm. Yeah, and who can forget Murray Walker's commentary when uh, Damon Hill finally won the, the Grand Prix title and uh, championship? It was uh, absolute classic sports uh, broadcasting. Uh, absolutely, um, and 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 a, and, a, and, a, and a great guy, and you know, stood up for the whole two hours watching the race. On one occasion, in a very excited moment, someone went off in flames, and James threw his hand up uh, in excitement, knocking all Murray's notes flying. And I spent the next hour and a half scrabbling around trying to find the relevant one for whoever we were talking. Have you got the Alan Prost notes, Charles? Hang on, Murray. I'm just looking. Um, so, <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Very, very sad loss. Our thoughts go out to all the families of everybody who's, uh, who's passed away that you mentioned, Charles, and, uh, and obviously wider as well. And who or what are you telling to get in the bin, Charles? Justin, it's it's not a who, it's it's more a, a statistic that I'm saying needs to get in the bin. And mm. it's quite interesting because that statistic has become very big news today. The day we are recording this, this podcast, that mm. news has taken on new levels. So what I wanted to get in the bin was the fact that only two women feature in a recent top 100 earners in sport. 
Um, and I felt that needed to get in the bin because it was outrageous. Both of whom were tennis players. One is Serena Williams. I think she was about number 44. But number 15, and again, the only two in the top 100, Justin, was Japan's Naomi Osaka. And, you know, here is a world number two who's won her second U.S. Open title, backed this up by winning this year's Australian Open, a four-time major champion, and has acquired more than 50 million in endorsements. But now she's pulled out of the French Open. And the reason is she felt for her mental health, uh, she didn't want to do any post-match interviews. She actually said answering questions after defeat amounted to kicking a person while they're down. So whilst that absolutely is not part of my get in the bin, and you could argue that she's a hero as well for making that stand, some people don't agree, but a lot of people do. Um, But the, the main element I wanted to get in the bin was the fact that only two women out of 100 top earners in sport. And and that's something we've touched on women a bit, Justin. Uh, That's something that I really think we need to change uh, over the next five years. As a guy, I feel feel really embarrassed. It's embarrassed. You're absolutely right. And they're both tennis players. So that means no other sport has got its act together yet, you know, in in reality. So, um, yeah. So that's why I wanted to throw that particular stat in the bin. Yeah, in the bin it goes. Charles, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's been fascinating chatting to you and uh, could chat much more about lots of the different aspects of uh, of the things that we've discussed, not least Leeds United, of course. But, uh, but yeah, So I'll hope, hopefully see you maybe at a match sometime, Charles. But until then, thanks a lot. Stay safe. Thank you again for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure. Now, we've touched briefly on the massive media mergers that we've seen over the past couple of weeks, and just recently now with Charles, obviously. But here to discuss these in a bit more detail and to speculate on who's next on the block is Evan Shapiro, Emmy and Peabody award-winning producer and adjunct professor of TV and media, NYU Stern School of Business. Welcome back to the show, Evan. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. It's great to see you. You're speaking from the roof of your is it your apartment in New York City? Yeah, it's my apartment building. Yep, it's, it's nice. It's the first Al Fresco telecast recording, so uh, so it's, it's always good to have a first. And you're also the first person to come back on the show three times. Hey, wow, <laughs> what an honor! So, first of all, like it's been media merger madness. So, uh, first of all, let's break down the Warner Media and Discovery deal. What do you think? Smart move? I mean, there's smart and then there's kind of just inevitable. You know, so yeah, I think smart in that from an AT&T standpoint, quite easily one of the greatest pieces of media malpractice in history. Um, so uh, Scott Galloway actually put out an interesting chart this week based on his uh, daily Benjamin Burn metric, which is the number of dollars burned by a CEO per day during their tenure. And Randall Stevenson came in second only to uh, Steve Ballmer. Um, and the Steve Ballmer one was exacerbated by the Nokia purchase. This one, you know, between DirecTV and Warner Media, Randall Stevenson at AT&T set on fire about $100 billion during his tenure. Uh, so this Warner sale is basically a, a white flag from AT&T saying we're out of the media business. You know, this comes on the heels quickly of the direct TV sale, 
Um, so they bought DirecTV for $65 billion, sold it for $15 billion. They bought uh, WarnerMedia for around $85 billion, although probably closer to $100 billion at the end of the day, and sold it for a value of $43 billion uh, in this last thing. So you know, AT&T is basically, this is them leaving the media ship like, uh, like the rat that they are. There was no way this wasn't going to happen. It was just a question of who was the partner going to be and when was it going to happen. Whether there was talks about them merging with NBC Universal and other things like that. Uh, in the case of Discovery, uh, Zaslav, I think, rightfully knew that there was just no way for Discovery scripts to fight in the media wars without a, a massive amount of scale, which they did not have. Um, and so they were either going to be purchased, at which point Zaslav would be kind of the the acquire E. Um, and I, I, th- I think that was very much not a, a standpoint he, he wanted to have. So he decided to be aggressive and he saw an opportunity because he knew AT&T wanted out of the game. And so uh, this was a very smart move for Discovery. It should be noted as well that John Malone, who was the largest shareholder in Discovery prior to this move, he changed the status of his shares from an A-class preferred share to a regular shareholder during this move. And there's many reports, including his own statements, that demonstrate that this is not the last time that this combination will transact, um, that it's very likely that after this get, get goes through, uh, it, the, the disco warner, as I like to call it, um, will be sold again. Um, so I think it was an inevitable move. Whether it turns out to be smart or not, I think is uh, another thing altogether. You know, the cultures of Discovery and Warner are very different. D- Discovery is a, a, a very unsiloed business, and Warner is traditionally one of the great silo makers of all time. Discovery is very much not a Hollywood machine, and Warner Media definitely is a, a Hollywood machine. But from the standpoint of a streaming service, I think the combination of Discovery Plus and HBO Max is a great one. Um, HBO Max was already picking up a lot of steam this year. Um, Discovery Plus launched pretty well. But the combination of these two, having Property Brothers um, and HGTV's library combined with the Warner library of the DC Universe, HBO's Universe, Adult Swim, CNN, I think is going to make probably one of the three best channels on earth in the Netflix, Disney Plus, slash Hulu, uh, and now the HBO Max disco world. Essentially, it's a marriage of convenience, we think. Absolutely. Without question. Um, and, and, by the way, and by the way, evidenced by the fact that you know, nobody's valuation really skyrocketed afterwards. I mean, it's not a uh, you know the the enemy of my enemy is my friend type of thing because these two companies weren't really competing for the same consumer, which is what makes them such a good combination. The Discovery viewer and the HBO Max viewer were very unlike. They had different tastes, they had very different demos, um, different uh, economic profile, different psychographic profile. So the the combination of them t- of the two, you know, kind of like conquers the family in a in a way that you know, Netflix definitely does. And the continuum of Disney, ESPN plus and Hulu does, but really no other service on earth does at this point, except maybe Amazon does to a certain extent. Officially, I mean, as far as I could work out the figures, it means that this new merged group is now a third, I believe, in terms of subscriptions, global subscriptions so far. So I think it's about 50 odd million. 
Yeah, because well, you you have to you have to throw in all of the HBO subscribers, even the ones that aren't HBO Max, and so yeah, that puts them. This puts them actually probably over over sixty million combined. And remembering that the vast majority of those subscribers are in the U.S., so they have a tremendous amount of growth cycle ahead of them. And obviously, you know, not to be outdone, Amazon then bagged MGM Studios for about eight billion dollars. What did you make of this deal? Again, I would use the word inevitable. MGM had to sell. They were designed to sell. Their investors were looking to sell. They bought the company to sell it. It was a, it was a house flipping exercise. Um, and Epix is not really a channel that has any kind of brand awareness or real you know, leverage in the marketplace. So it's the library that, that has value here. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for the, the OG traditional media companies like the HBOs and the Disneys to buy a company like this because no one was going none of the OG media players who have big libraries were going to pay you know, close to $9 billion for this company. It was going to be a tech company who needed a library play. So it was going to be either Apple or Amazon, you know, potentially uh, Alphabet, you know, or a company like that. But really, Amazon and, and Apple were the only two that made a whole lot of sense. And Amazon has demonstrated a desire and willingness to spend a gargantuan amount of money on franchises. So they put a half a billion dollars. Actually, they put close to a, a trillion dollars into the Lord of the Rings franchise that they're starting up. Um, so they spent a quarter of a billion dollars just buying the rights and then another uh, half a billion uh, basically making and, and propping up, you know, putting up the show. The IP library play was something obviously they, they were very, very interested in. And so this really falls into that strategy. It should be noted that Amazon spent basically less than a month's worth of revenue buying this company. <laughs> so it really was not a major purchase for them. I, I think people are making a much larger deal of it than it actually even deserves to be in the continuum of things. Um, yeah. But that said, I think they're going to do great things. I think, they, I think they will at least attempt to do better and greater things with the Bond library than what has been done at MGM over years. Not that the Bond films haven't been good, especially the Daniel Craig era is probably my favorite era of James Bond. Um, but you know, they've never made a Q movie. They've never made a Money Penny movie. They've never made you know. Th 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 there, there are a lot of really great spinoffs in the Marvel universe strategy that Bond deserves and has never gotten because MGM is a very small and cheap notoriously cheap company um you know pink panther deserves a comeback um that's a really great franchise that could really spin off a, a number of, of wonderful you know and i don't mean the steve martin years i mean the peter sellers years well that was going to be my next point is that steve martin almost single-handedly killed the pink panther franchise but you're right it's it's got legs hasn't it yeah, totally. Then you throw in there the fact that they own the Fargo IP, they own, which has been one of my favorite series of the last decade. Um, they own The Handmaid's Tale, which is another really great franchise right now. They control the Get Shorty ecosystem. They control the Legally Blonde ecosystem. So there's a RoboCop. There's a tremendous number of really great uh, pieces of IPs. It's not even really about the library per se, because most of those films are tied up in, in rights deals with other players right now. It's much more about the future franchise. And if you look at what Disney has done with Marvel and Star Wars and the Muppets and Pixar, so that's all acquisitions. 
And now they are just engines of growth within the Disney universe. This is that type of move. I'm not a big Bezos fan because I think he's Lex Luthor, but I think it's uh, a brilliant move. And I think it will work out incredibly well long term for Amazon. What it means for MGM and the people who work there and people at Epix is substantially less certain, but the investors made out like gangbusters. So it was, uh, this was a much bigger win-win than I think the, the Warner Disco move was. Fascinating, as you say, in its own right, the opportunity for expansion of its IP is uh, is going to be a really interesting one to to see. Maybe maybe we'll see a Bond TV series, or maybe not. I don't know. Well, I think I mean in the way that WandaVision was a really unexpected turn for the Marvel universe. I don't know if you've watched it; it's terrific. Yeah. Um, I think you know a, a television series about Miss Moneypenny would be amazing. Yeah, <laughs> a spy. TV show in the Mad Men take. I mean, it's just genius. Uh, and I, you know, that's my own idea. I'm sure they'll get pitched a thousand others. Q, the, the guy who makes all the machinery in the basement, totally unexploited character. Inspector Gadget, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, pretty much. Interesting. Now, looking further afield, we also saw, which was, it was much, obviously, much smaller deal and um, much less reported, but we saw in France, MCs and uh, TF1 merging or uh, announcing their intention to merge. Obviously, it's going to be down to regulators to, and quote, provide a French response to the challenges from global platforms. Isn't this a warning to these huge US streamers and, and technology companies that we're talking about that, you know, they can't just expect to steamroller through Europe and the rest of the world and hoover up subscriptions and duke it out between each other. You know, it might not be as simple as that as uh, decisions are made in American boardrooms a world away from these territories, which actually may say, you know what, you know, there's maybe a bit too much American Netflix and a little bit, you know, too much of Amazon Prime here. And yeah, I mean, do you think that's that's going to be a uh, you know a, an issue going forward for 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 the streamers. I think. I mean, look, international expansion is just not a it's just not a one to one game as Netflix is, is is finding out. I mean, they're expanding pretty well around the world, but it, it's costly. You know, they're they're not just moving into Europe and setting up shop and hoovering up subscribers like 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 you talked about. They they have to produce local content. England being kind of an exception because a lot of the content that Netflix makes translates incredibly well. And in fact, they have a tremendous amount of English-made content. Same thing with HBO. But outside of uh, English-speaking territories, it's a very expensive game. I mean, you know, one-third of Disney's subscribers comes from Hotstar in India, and that has almost no likeness to Disney Plus in the United States. It's, it's you know it's primarily driven by cricket. <laughs> yes, I think it should be a warning, but I think, you know, th- this was always going to be an expensive proposition for the big what I call trillion dollar death stars or or American media moguls. You have to make local content. You cannot just expand into territories without making local content. And you can expect that the local broadcasters are going to fight back. And it, and it is happening. I mean, if you look at the Netherlands or Australia or France or Spain or Italy, you know, the local streamers do incredibly well, you know, because they have relationships with, with content. But if you look at what Netflix is doing in Spain, you know, they're moving in and doing deals with pretty much every top content creator in Spain right now. 
you know, and that's there's two reasons for that. One, they want to conquer Spanish speaking territories, but two, you know, the Spanish stuff actually does incredibly well in the United States. Money Heist does really well, and the new series from those same creators is doing incredibly well. But there's also another larger danger, which is the subscription model that's working very well for you know streamers in the United States and in Western Europe will not work around the rest of the world. Um, it will not work in India. It will not work in Africa, which are two of the fastest growing content markets out there. And by the way, you know where the two largest content creators on earth exist, Bollywood and Nollywood are the, are the two fastest producers of content on earth. Neither of those territories really cater to prepaid subscriptions. Most of the content is, is, is advertising driven, free advertising driven services. So Everything gets more complicated after you conquer America. Like conquer America is not easy, but Disney did it in record speed. Netflix has obviously done it. HBO Max is well on their way. Amazon Prime is definitely there. Nobody else really yet. But as they turn to international, it's going to be much thornier, much more costly per customer acquisition than I think these services imagine. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how things play out. And not only fascinating for the these streamers that we've been discussing, these, as you say, trillion-dollar death stars. But looking at the rest of the content industry, and I'm sure you've been busy redrawing your multimedia map of the universe, which I'll put a, a link yes. on, which is uh, you know, it's a really great piece of work. It just keeps getting better, actually. That's a great thing about it. As the universe expands, so does the Evan Shapiro Media Universe document. When we're looking at that, it really does highlight actually how small some of the, you know, what we see as media giants, or maybe we've come to assume a media giants actually are absolutely nothing when it comes to being, you know, dwarfed by these tech companies. So, with that in mind, I saw your post a few days ago, Evan, and I thought it was fascinating where you've basically put together some odds and probabilities for the next. 10 major media wars moves. Let's go through those and hear your predictions for who's going to be buying. Let's start with Lionsgate. Who's going to buy Lionsgate, in your opinion? That's a comparable company to MGM from a size standpoint, you know, and they also own their own streaming service in the way Epix was at MGM. So Stars is a, is a really decent uh, channel, actually much bigger than Epix was. I think this is one where you could see Netflix. I don't think Netflix is a major acquirer in general, but, you know, the value of Lionsgate is not so substantial that they couldn't come up with the capital to buy it. And I think the library there, you know, you're talking about um, over 11,000 titles. And it's just a massive yeah. library. Um, and, it would, and it would really bolster Netflix's uh, kind of stickiness. So I could see Netflix doing it, but I actually think it's more likely that Apple would at, at twice the valuation of $4 billion for Lionsgate, which is basically what happened with MGM. It was bought for twice what it was, was really the market value was. You know, Apple has that much in Tim Cook's couch uh, cushions. Their major issue with their television service right now is library. They they have good programs. Ted Lasso's a great show. Dickinson's a great show. They have good some good movies. They just don't have enough, and it's really hurting them. So I, I would say if I had a if I had to give a probability, it would be Apple. And I think that happens soon. 
I think that happens this year. This year. Okay. You can come back for the fourth time, Evan, and we'll go through and we'll yeah. see how uh, see how you, you did. Yeah. We'll look back at the reality. Now, how about A&E? Well, this is easy. I mean, this actually is probably the next move, especially given the combination of Discovery and Warner, which is a nonfiction shop combining with a fiction shop primarily. Yeah, that's that's a gross overstatement because CNN is obviously a nonfiction shop and they have nonfiction programming. But for the most part, that combination makes sense because it's a scripted shop combining with an with an unscripted shop. Um, Disney already owns forty percent or fifty percent of A and E. For them, you know, making this purchase, there is no other buyer, and it's not hard. And A and E just made a deal to have their content distributed on Discovery, and I think that's not something that Disney is going to be too thrilled with long term. So I think, I think that one happens. You know, I would say by the end of first quarter next year. That's A and E history lifetime, a majority stake in Vice. It's a really nice portfolio of content. It includes uh, Storage Wars and American Pickers, and you know, a ton of content. Uh, a biography library, which is vast. A lot of content. Yeah. Scripted and unscripted, as you say. Yeah. Hmm. Looking at Viacom CBS, a lot of people have been turning their eyes towards both Lionsgate and Viacom CBS and, and just thinking, well, maybe maybe they look a lot smaller than they did a few weeks ago. What do you think is on the cards for Viacom CBS as regards the purchaser? Um, yeah, so Viacom CBS you know, does. It looks it's it's about half the size of what Warner was valued at in that transaction. So that that, that transaction valued Warner Media at 43 billion. Viacom's in the in the 20 to 30 billion range right now. Yeah, I, I go back to Apple. Apple really needs library. Viacom CBS has one of the great all-time television libraries out there. And then it also includes things like Star Trek and Mission Impossible and a whole bunch of other really great film and television franchises on top of that. So because Paramount is included in there, Paramount Plus has a tremendous uh, start on the streaming wars because they had where they were CBS access for a number of years. I think it's a steal at at 50 billion and I think Apple is the is the primary buyer in that scenario, but this is where I start to veer out into where I think the next stage of the media wars is going to happen, which is Facebook and Google both are facing tremendous headwinds from a regulatory standpoint on their advertising business. And I think they're going to need to diversify those businesses by dint of the fact that they're going to be regulated out of their illegal duopoly. And so I think Alphabet is a really interesting potential suitor for Viacom CBS. You combine Paramount Plus with YouTube, and it's a really elegant solution for both companies. Uh, I think that the combination of the two would be would be pretty good. So I, I, I could actually see a bidding war over Viacom CBS between Apple and Alphabet, with maybe even Facebook getting into the game. Okay, I've got two more for you, Evan. Roku. What about Roku? So Roku is a great company. You know, very well run. They control about twenty five percent of all connected TV devices in the United States. They're incredibly powerful. They're currently at war with YouTube. And this comes on the heel after being on, at war with HBO Max and Peacock last year. And they, they are a major, major player. They are also notoriously frugal. You know, they're currently worth somewhere between 40 and $50 billion. But Apple TV's, you know, the device was not really very much of a success. And I think Apple regrets that. 
there's a really interesting plug and play model for Apple and Roku. And by the way, the, the key problem with Roku's business is they have almost no footprint outside the US. So that's where their expansion is going to come and it's going to be very costly. Um, and so I think, you know, you need a deep pockets buyer in this case. Um, I don't think Samsung will be allowed to buy them for regulatory reasons. So I think Apple is one, but here's another, again, next stage of the media wars. Microsoft really wants into the entertainment business very, very badly. They tried to buy TikTok last year, it failed. They tried to buy Pinterest, failed. They tried to buy Discord, failed. They have deep pockets. They've got money in their pockets, look, you know, burning a hole in them. Uh, Sandella really wants to be in the living room game. Um, and I think Microsoft uh, is actually the most likely buyer of Roku for many, many different reasons. That's a next, next stage of the Media Wars game, which these trillion-dollar Death Stars really... And I think Amazon fired the starters gun on it um, last week with the MGM purchase. One last one for you. This okay. is fascinating. So this is DAZN, which is obviously the Netflix for sports is how it's been yeah. uh, been positioned. Starting to pick up some sports rights, some interesting sports rights around the world. What do you think? Uh, I really think Disney would be the most likely buyer, but I just don't think from a regulatory standpoint they'll be allowed to because of ESPN. In these purchases, you have to, you have to factor in EU, Australia, and US regulators. They're going to play heavily in these moves. I would say Disney would be the natural buyer, but I just don't see it passing the regs right now, at least while Biden is in office in the US. Again, I go back to Apple. They, they, they want to be in the television business. Tim Cook has said they're in acquiring mode. Again, they could buy. Dazen is, is you know, valued at around $4 billion right now. Apple has that much you know, in the till at the cafeteria in their headquarters. So I think they would be a good one. But I actually see uh, Netflix is again, I don't see them as a major acquirer of company, mostly because of their cash position is not terrific right now. But, but, but they're going to need new weapons to fight in the media wars. And I could see Netflix uh, being one of those companies um, that gets in the game. But don't also don't sleep on Amazon, who just took over Thursday night football, um, you know, for a billion dollars. Fascinating. Well, you know, sports is something we were speaking to Charles Belchin earlier on, and uh, who's uh, one of the world's biggest sports producers. And, you know, we know how resilient sports is and how people have been, you know, consuming sports. And Netflix, other than its uh, sports factual documentaries, really hasn't been in the game, has right. it, when it comes right. to sports? So, uh, yeah. And they have no, they have no live viewership strategy right now. Yeah. If Netflix is going to make a move in content, I think news and sports is is where they're going to go. But just one last freebie for you. Mm. Um, I, I think that's not something they're going to do while they're on their own. So I would also say one that's not on my list, but is definitely going to happen, I would say in the next 36 months is after Netflix gets acquired, not when, but after Netflix gets acquired, I see them, you know, making real moves into news and sports. And the the acquirer of Netflix is again very likely going to be one of the three trillion dollar Death Stars I mentioned earlier, Apple, Alphabet, or Microsoft. Fascinating. Makes your head spin. The amount of money yeah. involved and uh, the amount of content that we're talking about, and obviously the number of people it's going to affect. But thank you, Evan, for uh, for walking us through that. We'll put a link in the episode description so everybody could take a look at that post. You know, let Evan know what you think. Totally. And uh, Evan, you know, we look forward to you coming back on 
telecast and who knows there may be some, all these deals may go through in the next few months and uh, we'll be back on again ruminating on who's buying who which death star is going to buy which death star right <laughs> all right thank you evan thanks for joining us thank you my pleasure thank you well that's about it for another week's show as always thanks for listening don't forget to rate and subscribe to telecast and share it with friends and colleagues and a quick reminder to sign up for our free newsletter called telecast plus it's packed with interesting tv industry stories of the week you may have missed downloadable reports and surveys and exclusive insight and opinion including the secret producer our intrepid anonymous real life exec reporting from the front line of tv production it's all completely free just visit our website to sign up at telecast-podcast.com that's telecast-podcast.com and you can also follow us on instagram linkedin and twitter telecast was edited by ian chambers and recorded in london until next thursday as always stay safe